Welcome to the Lost Debate Show, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and today, unfortunately, young Ricky Schlott is sick. So we're going to be doing something special today. First, we're going to wish her a speedy recovery. But the original plan was for me to just jump on here and Stephen A. Smith this uh, recording and just talk uh, through the issues of the day, which is essentially what we're going to do. But I feel like I didn't want to do that alone. So I'm going to welcome on two of our producers here at The Last Debate, uh, some people who make this thing work behind the scenes, Mickey Ayub and Monica Aspitia. Uh, Mickey is our producer of The Lost Debate Show. Monica is also a producer of The Lost Debate Show and Pulso Pendolo, our Spanish language show, among other shows. Mickey and Monica, welcome to the podcast. Hell yeah. Happy to be here. Happy to be here, too. <laughs> you are also two of our uh, Latin American born staff members. Mickey, you're, you hail from Brazil, Monica from Colombia. Mm-hmm. So we can bring a, bit of, a little bit of that Latin flavor here. Uh, <laughs> we need it. You know, spice things up a little it. bit. Well, you know, Ricky went down to Memphis, guys, for this, this Freedom Fest. And my sense is maybe a little bit too much freedom. Maybe, you know, too much of anything is a bad thing. Yeah, definitely too much freedom down there. I'm so curious to hear what she, like her takes on it. To me, it, it sounds like an exciting, really funny combination of a bunch of strange people having chats about freedom. I'm excited to hear all about that. Yeah, maybe it's like the more cowbell thing. It's like, you know, I have a sickness and the cure for it. Maybe it's more government. Maybe we bring her up here and, you know, just stifling New York City government will help nurse her back to health. Uh, but Monica, you are, you're, you're a pretty seasoned tennis player. And so I think it's a good time to bring up since I have both of you on here <laughs> for, our, for our listeners, just so you know a little bit about what happens behind the scenes. Uh, oh at God, the branch I, I know what's show. coming. I know what you're going to talk <laughs> about now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Mickey came down to Costa Rica for my 40th birthday and we were trash talking about tennis. Now, Mickey, you grew up playing tennis in Brazil. I only started playing in the past year and a half. Monica, you're really good at tennis. But Mickey and I were, were trash talking and we wanted making a bet. And listeners, you can weigh in in voicemail if you want to take one side or the other here. The stakes are high for this bet. So we're actually going to play a full tennis match uh, in the fall. And the loser of this tennis match is going to have to have Pura Vida, the sort of Costa Rican sort of motto, uh, tattooed on their butt. Uh, and so this is super high stakes, Mickey. So I, I want to use this as an opportunity to ask you how you're training and if you're training right now. I mean, the thing is, I don't have to train that much because your backhand is absolutely <laughs> horrific. But yeah, okay. I think that I haven't really trained in the past month and a half because I've been traveling quite a bit. But I think I'll be That's all right. That's what I love to hear. Yeah, I think I'll be all right. I think I'll be all right. Your backhand, it's just literally go to Robbie's backhand. That's all you need to do and you'll win the game. Monica, there's a saying that says tragedy requires hubris. And I don't know if you're hearing what I'm hearing, which is you're just complacent, which is fine. You know, you should know I I went to over to Italy. I worked on my backhand and I'll send you some videos, but maybe I won't because you can live in your, your little cocoon of overconfidence and I'll continue training. I mean, judging by Ravi's Instagram, he's been practicing. Like I can see he's always uh, posting videos from the tennis court. But Ravi, I think what's really interesting about this, I think we need to explain to the audience what Pura Vida means. What 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 is the concept of Pura Vida for Costa Ricans? It's really funny because while Mickey and I were down in Costa Rica, we, Mickey, you're here for this, right? When we were just randomly just responding Pura Vida to just nonsensical things, including like very serious things our friends were talking about. And we just wanted to test the limits as to what the phrase could mean. I think it's one of those things that can't be like, can't be given a didactic explanation. It's more just like a mentality. It's like a hakuna matata or something. You just have to experience it, right? Yeah. 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 It's a vibe. I don't know, Mickey. Like Mickey yeah. likes to say. Yeah. It's a vibe. It's, you, it's yeah. definitely for the vibe. Pura Vida is a feeling. It's an energy that is the Costa Rican people kind of embody, which I love. But it's also, Who are the best people? Yeah. Some of the best people. Yeah, it's also yeah. kind of an amazing thing because Ravi loves Costa Rica so much, but he's like, you know, he's not uptight, but he's, a, you know, more uptight oh, than yeah. most people. Careful, <laughs> careful, careful. But Mickey, as, an, as a Latin American, back me up here. I think Costa Ricans, like the rest of the region, we see them as, you know, like they're just like, they have it together. It's so chill. They, I mean, I obviously they have problems, but compared to the other countries in the region, it really feels like life is just easy. And they they're have like always out. going to the beach, surfing, mm-hmm. having the time of their lives. 
We'll, we'll we'll bring it back down there next year, and maybe we'll do some recordings down there. There's a great recording studio in that town that we go to. We've done a lot of podcasts there. So, all right, to get serious here for a second, a couple show updates. One is on Threads, and I'm glad Ricky's not here for this because she might be crowing about this data. But according to the data analytics company SimilarWeb, the number of daily active users on Threads dropped from 48 million to 23.6 million in just a week. Threads' best day was July 7th, just two days after launch. Uh, and the total daily minutes of use has also fallen from 21 minutes on July 7th to just over six minutes on July 14th. So, uh, you know, we talked about Threads a couple episodes ago. It seemed like it had a really promising start. It seems like things are slowing down there. Uh, as that's going on, uh, Twitter is have facing its own challenges. Uh, ARK Investment Management, which is Kathy Wood, the sort of famed investor who takes a lot of risky bets, especially on crypto, she wrote down her stake this week in Twitter by 47%, now giving uh, Twitter an implied value in her eyes of $23 billion relative to the $44 billion that Musk paid for it. So it's basically dropped almost in half. Uh, and Musk also said over the weekend that advertising in Twitter has fallen nearly 50% and the business remains cash flow negative. So in the world of social media, you know, kind of a, a, a bit of uh, headwinds or tailwinds for Twitter in the sense that Threads is struggling a little bit. Uh, it doesn't appear to be taking off in the ways that it seems like it could have. Uh, but Twitter financially is still struggling. Where do you think this will be in a month, Rob, Twitter and threads, like this dynamic? I'm like the wrong person to ask of this because I just don't use a lot of social media. I have put two threads up basically related to the work here at the branch and I deleted it and haven't looked at it since. I don't go on Twitter unless I have to tweet for this uh, or um, the Majority 54 podcast. And I also tend to delete tweets really quickly because I regret anything I say on any social media. And Instagram is the only thing I use. And even that, I block using an app called Opal from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. every single day. So I don't know. What do you guys think? What I would say is I think it's normal. I think it makes sense to me that Threads is not growing as rapidly as maybe it was growing a week ago. Because it was growing so rapidly, it's, it's hard to maintain that level of growth. But I think it is still very impressive. Do you go on threads or Twitter, Monica? Twitter, I, I don't post on Twitter. I mean, I reshare some stuff, mostly news related. But uh, I haven't I haven't gone on threads yet. But I, I do intend, I just I want to be there just to see what people are talking about. We'll, we'll keep monitoring that. I'm glad we can get that news out of the way when Ricky's not on the show. Because I'm sure she'd have a lot to say about threads. Uh, and it's, at least it's it's slowing pace. One other big update related to a story we did last week. So we talked about student debt and we alluded to this this law called the 1965 Higher Education Act. And Biden, in fact, on Friday, uh, uses authority under that act, as we predicted, and ha appears poised to forgive the debt uh, of 800,000 borrowers who have their remaining loan balances uh, with the federal government. And it's up to $39 billion in relief as part of a program to address past errors, as the Biden administration is framing this, made by loan servicers who failed to give credit to people who had taken out loans or m who may have provided poor service when borrowers called for assistance. Now, this is some lawyering going on here. In part, what's going on is that the 1965 Higher Education Act uh, has eligibility for loan forgiveness for people who've had about 20 to 25 years of payments. And under certain circumstances where the government deems that they've been wronged or the law is triggered. And so basically the administration is kind of hewing closely to the language of the statute, more specific language, if you remember the, the major questions doctrine that we talked about. And so essentially, this is the Biden administration saying, all right, well, this is our second best option, but one that's more likely to withstand the court's scrutiny. And one other thing that is really interesting is that in the coming days and months, thousands of borrowers are going to learn whether they qualify or they'll also learn if you don't qualify, how many payments you need to make before you qualify. And then they're going to start discharging debts within uh, 30 plus days, I think about 30 days after that. So they're trying to discharge this debt really fast, not only because I think they want to give relief to people, but also once they discharge debt, it's really hard for the Supreme Court to sweep in and, and put the genie back in the bottle here. 
What do you think are the, like the political implications with all of this, Rob? Biden, I think, number one, he wants to show that he's fulfilling a campaign promise. Two is he wants to activate younger voters, even though given the the, the fine print here, it's actually not younger voters because you've had you will have had to make a bunch of payments. But I think this is popular among younger voters. Uh, I also just think he wants to be shown as effective, and I think uh, by and large, even though student relief is not as popular as I think think some Democrats think it is, he wants to I think pick a fight with the Supreme Court. Biden does. Um, because I think they they view the Supreme Court as an institution that is unpopular and tethered to uh, some decisions that are way less popular than this, including the Dobbs decision. And they had a lot of success in the midterm election. Basically, Democrats, even though having the White House running almost as opposition because of the prominence of the Supreme Court. So the more that they can say the Supreme Court is standing in your way and that we're fighting against them, the more I think they think the politics work in their favor. My, I also think, like, if I don't want to be cynical about it, I, I think they think this is good policy. And in terms of the policy itself, what is the difference this time? Does Biden have a better chance now of actually being able to implement this policy? Well, it's hard to say because the major questions doctrine itself, as we've talked about, is is in its in its application is very new. So we don't have a lot of experience with how broadly the Supreme Court deems its authority. And quite frankly, I think it's a very political institution. And so I think they bend their own doctrine in order to serve political aims. And so I think given that, I have a hard time imagining Roberts striking this down based on how specific the language is in the Higher Education Act, but I think it's anybody's guess what the rest of them say. I think Kavanaugh is somebody I would watch carefully on this case because he has shown himself to be a, a, a little bit more independent than the rest of the conservative justices, save Roberts. And so I think he's going to be a key swing vote on this. My sense, though, is the, the statute is much more effect, uh, much more specific, which is really important for the, the major questions doctrine, which, as a reminder to listeners, really applies when the statute is super duper broad and the administration takes that broad reading and does something very sweeping. In this case, it's kind of specific. And what Biden is doing is very specific. So the, the Supreme Court's going to have to stand, step in and say, well, actually, these people weren't wronged. And they didn't get poor advice and they, you know, they, they didn't have payments that they made that uh, were uncredited, et cetera. And those are findings of fact. And the Supreme Court generally does not make findings of fact. They make findings of law. And so if this is going to play out in litigation, I think it will need lower court um, maneuvering first. And unless these lower courts issue stay in the next you know, month or two, I think this is going to be really hard to unwind. Well, okay, let's talk about one other big story before we get to voicemails. The actor strike started on Friday. There was a vote on Thursday by SAG-AFTRA, which is AFTRA, AFTRA, AFTRA sorry, which is the uh, actors union. And uh, they are now on strike as of Friday. Uh, and if you remember, we talked about the writer strike that began on May 2nd. This is the first time that uh, both unions have been uh, on strike simultaneously since 1960. SAG-AFTRA has 160,000 members who work in film and TV. Uh, and they are up against the AMPTP, which is the uh, production studios, which is the same group that's on the opposite side of the WGA, the writers. So the AMPTP includes people like Netflix, Walt Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, Netflix, I said Netflix twice, uh, Amazon. And um, full disclosure, Reed Hastings, who was the former CEO and chair of Netflix and founder of Netflix, is a donor to this entity. Um, but this, my sense here is like this is a huge deal. This essentially means that production on film and TV and also promotion is is halting. So before it was slowed down because of, you can't do a lot of things without writers. But now, like let's say you have a fully written script that you hew to 100%. You now can't film that either. And so this is a humongous, humongous deal. Um, Mickey, you had looked into a little bit of the economics of actors and you found some surprising data just about, like, I think if our listeners think about it, we conflate fame with money. 
So you may think, hey, like this person, I recognize them from the show. They may even be a pretty significant actor or actress. And you and I think people often hear about things like Robert Downey Jr. getting paid, you know, gazillion dollars for, you know, superhero movies. But I was shocked, Mickey, by some of the data that you pulled about what actors and actresses really get paid. The average actor salary is sixty-eight, around sixty-eight thousand dollars a year. And the the fact that shocked me the most, Rob, was the best paid 25% made $60,000 a year and the lowest 25% made $30,000, meaning that the best 25%, the, the bar is so low that it's at $60,000, meaning Downey Jr. made on Avengers Infinity War $75 million, but in comparison, someone is still in the top 25% made $60,000. So the scale is massive. I have a question about that data. Mickey, because you said that the average salary is 68, but the top 25% made 60. It's because the the top, let's say 1% or 0.1% makes so, 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 so much money that the average is $68,000. So the I scale see. is so dramatic. So a median would be a probably helpful piece of information. And I think, you know, what, what's fascinating, you said top 25% made 60,000. And a lot of times, you know, you look at the the SAG-AFTRA, like the, like the WGA, they have minimums, right? So- if you're writing a script, there's like a minimum you need to get paid. If you're an actor or actress on a, on a set, you get paid a minimum. And, you know, performers might make, you know, a minimum of 1000 a day, a little bit more than that, up to mid to, to high 3000s for the week and as a minimum. And often the minimums are what are being paid. And I think people look at that and say, well, that's a decent, you know, it's a decent salary or whatever. But folks aren't acting and the all year round, like there are huge gaps between projects inevitably. I just think this is shocking because you think of actors and actresses as rich. And I think this is basically saying they're at best middle class. And the other thing that I find interesting about this is the lifestyle that's expected of them, right? Is very expensive. They are supposed to attend galas and they're supposed to attend all sorts of events and they have to dress a certain way. They have to promote themselves in a certain way. And that's all expensive. And if they're all making $60,000 a year, how are they supposed to make a living? And also if they don't attend those events, it's harder for them to get hired for other shows. But a lot of these actors, that's what they're saying. How are we expected to get designer clothes if we, we cannot even afford to pay rent? It's it's really shocking. And, and we talked about this with the WGA, with the writers. And what happened last time the writers were striking was that there was a split between the actors and the writers. The actors cut a deal, which it seemed like they were close to cutting a deal this time. And once the actors cut a deal, the the ground moved underneath the writers. They felt like they had to cave. And I think what this is really notable that both groups are on strike simultaneously. And what the actors are asking for mirrors what the writers are asking for. In this movement to streaming, you know, traditional television, network television is on the decline, massive decline. Uh, and you also have the movie theaters on the decline as well. Both numbers are going down, but you have the rise of streaming. Streaming platforms, uh, including Netflix, most notably, they're the 800-pound gorilla here, uh, they hide their data. They don't want to say how many people watch a given show. And uh, in contrast to network television that has advertising dollars attached to every single show, there's kind of like a piece of the pie here, right? Like it's like, all right, well, how much, how many, how many total dollars of revenue does Netflix have, and how many like percentages of like audience time does a given show account for, right? Like that's probably how you would figure some of this out. The problem is Netflix and these other companies they don't want to share the data uh, about how many people are watching. A given show. And that's a big sticking point for SAG-AFTRA is that they want to know what that, data, what that data shows. And they want a third party to come in and verify that so they can get proper residuals. And Monica, you were talking about um, just how crazy some of these residuals have gotten. Like It used to be that if you had a show, like a pretty popular show, like Steve Bannon, for example, for some reason gets residuals for Seinfeld and made gazillions of dollars uh, even now, he somehow bought residuals. I have no idea how that works. But 
as you discovered, some super duper popular shows, like the biggest shows, like the residuals are like next to nothing. Yeah, I'm curious. Did you ever watch Orange is the New Black? Because I was obsessed with that, show, that show when it came yeah. out. And I was so disappointed to hear some of these actors that I deeply admire saying that they were not making a living at the time, even though they had, they still had millions of followers. So for instance, Kimiko Glenn, she has been very vocal since the strike started and even before. And she reshared this um, TikTok video that she shared years ago, where she got this envelope with residuals. And, and right at the time, Orange is the New Black was so popular that she thought that she was going to get a lot of money. And then <laughs> when she added up, it was $28. And this is residuals like now, right? This so was I think a, a few years ago, actually. Yeah, wow. So I, I don't remember exactly when, but it was, I think, three years ago that she got $28 in residuals. That's unbelievable. And, and, I, and I think what's going on here is a couple of things. One is some of these companies were using the Amazon growth model where they were growing um, instead of being profitable, right? So they were saying like, let's reinvest, reinvest, reinvest. And instead of showing profit, we want to show growth. And what that winds up putting, it puts pressure on your bottom line not to pay exorbitant salaries, right? Uh, despite the fact I want to note that some of these companies cut crazy deals with people like Shonda Rhimes or um, Prince Harry and Meghan and Barack Obama and, you know, name your sort of key Greg Berlanti, like these sort of big, big names who are the big winners, right? So they have no problem paying for certain things like the rights to a certain thing or whatever when they really need to. But I think they view the writers and the run-of-the-mill actors as expendable. And they're also now starting to feel the burn on this sort of growth at all costs mentality where shareholders are starting to exact a price. So Bob Iger at Disney, um, it's basically, he's, he noted on Thursday that he's going to be putting the company's non-core channels, which include ABC and FX on the table for purchase. Um, and Disney stock has taken a huge hit. They've had massive layoffs and are you know basically jettisoning uh, IP. Warner Brothers Discovery uh, has said that it intends to be profitable this year. Um, and Disney is trying to do the same by 2024. Paramount uh, is, you know, tipping its hand that it wants to be profitable. And so a lot of these companies are trying to promise shareholders that they're going to be profitable. But if they have to pay their writers more, if they have to pay their actors more, it's going to be harder and harder to be profitable. And so I think this is going to be a, a you know, I, the, the, there was some, I think it was Deadline that reported a sort of uh, a not anonymous person from the AMPTP who said essentially their goal is to push the actors and writers to the point where they're in such financial distress that they start losing their homes, <laughs> which is, you know, was one source and anonymous. So like take it for what it is, but essentially I think they, they believe they have the leverage because if you take a company like Netflix, for example, they, um, as I noted during the WGA, I thought they were going to be a winner's um, back then. And I continue to think they're going to be winners now for a couple of reasons. One is they had these expensive contracts with the Shonda Rhimes of the world, et cetera. And now they they have these force majeure clauses that they can exercise to jettison these huge contracts that they otherwise didn't want to service. So they have leverage there. Two is they now don't have to pay for any of this production and nobody else can either. So they don't have to deal with the competitive pressures anymore. It's almost as if the strike has, has almost achieve what a monopoly would have otherwise, like unfair competitive practices, right? Like you could imagine all the production studios coming together saying, hey, we have been in this war of just buying, buying more and more, driving up the prices of IP, et cetera. Uh, what if we just all stopped doing that? That's essentially what's happening now. And we just kind of lived on existing IP and didn't spend so much on content. You know, people will have to go somewhere for their content, so they'll look at old stuff. The The number of shows in existence are staggering. So my sense is, you know, if, if there really is gonna be fewer shows and TV, et cetera, people will just keep watching new things. Nobody has a bigger um, catalog right now um, than Netflix, including, especially when you think about international content. So I think they're gonna be winners here, especially Netflix who has that international catalog. And and although the actor strike does affect some of the international uh, work here, it just means that they can start to feed some of that stuff into the United States and feed American content elsewhere and you know, vice versa. All this is to say is, um, I still think the actors and writers are in a very difficult position because they may find 
that the production studios don't believe they need actors and writers as much as the actors and writers think they do. Rob, do you think that, let's say, the massive tech companies, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Apple, view the strike in this situation differently than the massive production studios? They are kind of one and the same. You got to think about it because like the like Amazon has a production studio. Apple has a production studio. So they are members of the AMPTP. Now, I think somebody like Apple and Amazon may think differently than this than say a Netflix in part because the you know Netflix is pot committed. They're 100% in. Like this is their whole business. Whereas Apple it I get the sense that this is kind of a hobby for Tim Cook. <laughs> he likes to show up to the you know, the Oscars and he likes to be a player, but I don't, you know, Apple has so much money. Uh, and from what I can tell, from what we could tell, this isn't a huge money maker for them right now. They produce good stuff by and large. And I think it's a prestige thing for them more than anything else. So my sense is if like Tim Cook's at the table, he he's not driving the discussions. Whereas I think Ted Sarandos, you know, Reed Hastings, um, Bob Iger, those are the people who are driving these discussions because their bottom lines are very much at issue here. As I was doing research yesterday, I kept thinking, what role do we play as consumers? Because every night we are consuming these Hulu and Netflix shows. And it's because we like the actors, we like the scripts. So I, I wonder what what can we, I mean, if, if, if we should get involved in any way or if, if that would even change anything. One is you could make a moral choice and just be like, look, like I side with the actors and I side with the writers and I'm going to cancel my subscriptions until this is solved. That's one one thing people could do. I, I think that at some point that may happen naturally just because people don't feel like there's enough new content. Right. There is nothing to watch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I do think that there's so many shows. I forget the data. Uh, I was listening to Matthew Bellany. I was running through the statistics of how much content is in existence, how many shows, and you could spend the rest of your life discovering new shows. Now, what drives subscriptions often is not old stuff, but oh, I want to get the new White Lotus. I want to get this or that. And I think once succession, yeah, once yeah. new stuff isn't coming out, I think you're going to start to see people be like, ah, eh, like, like if I just had one subscription to one thing during this, you know, sort of blackout period, I could just rediscover new shows on Netflix, like forever. Like I had never seen Money Heist, for instance, and I just started watching it last weekend, last week when I was in Italy. Like there's a million shows and, and that's an international show, for example, that gets to the Netflix piece where they could just keep feeding new stuff. Awesome, awesome shows that they have internationally. I know Monica, you're very cognizant of this because we've talked about it as it relates to Latin American stuff. And I t we talked to Ariane, who's on our team, about India content. Like if you go to Netflix India, there's a whole separate world of content there that we have no idea what's going on there. And they get different shows too because I, I often recommend shows to my parents and they tell me that they, it's not, they, don't, they can't find it in the platform. Right, and so they can, they can mess around with this kind of stuff. There's, no, there's nothing really stopping them from like making certain things available. So the bigger players like that are going to have an infinite amount of options. Now, the question is, can they keep people excited about it? And, you know, the water cooler conversations around shows like Succession and White Lotus, are they going to have those conversations about international content that isn't necessarily new, but new to them? So that's something to keep an eye out for. There's also an AI component of this. I won't talk too much about this other than it, it mirrors the writer's uh, situation. And they essentially there's a question of digital likeness it, it definitely dovetails with what we talked about last week in, in terms of sarah silverman and that lawsuit it's very technical i won't go too much into it but essentially actors want to safeguard their ability to make money if studios take digital likeness and continue to use it over time and adapt it This is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. So with all of that, those are the updates. We have a bunch of voicemails that have been piling up. And so we're going to use this as an opportunity to respond to some of them. Mickey, what's up first? We have Jill from Southern California um, talking about her blue state to blue state migration. Because I think we had an episode a couple months ago talking about the rise in blue state to red state migration and like 
some of the details in the data. So let's listen. I just wanted to comment on uh, the most recent episode where you discussed the uh, migration from blue states to red states. Um, I'm actually planning on migrating from a blue state to a blue state, but I uh, wanted to actually discuss how the anti-business legislation in California has actually made me switch careers. Um, I've worked for a small business in California for the last 15 actually at this point, 17 years, and just the uh, grief that that business has been through, dealing with the small business legislation, we cannot uh, operate without uh, dealing with ADP, a very large um, corporation uh, HR company. Um, every time we turn around, we're running into some kind of new legislation. Even though our intentions are to have a wonderful environment for our employees, you know, to keep within all these regulations, the minutia has made it pretty much impossible to effectively run a small business in California. So instead of uh, possibly purchasing this business, my family and I are now contemplating a move to uh, Oregon, and I'm switching careers. So um, I totally concur with you that there's many, many blue states can do to retain uh, young career-focused people, um, young families, people who are hopefully down the road going to make more income and generate more tax revenue for that state. Um, anyway, love your show. Thank you so much. Um, can't wait to hear the next episode. This definitely resonates. There there was a 2022 uh, poll by the Cosmont Rose Institute. They call it the Cost of Doing Business Survey, and they do it every year in California. And I think it's uh, associated with one of the universities. I think it might be Claremont McKenna University. And they've been publishing this since 2003. And they found in the last survey, which is 2022, that 64% of businesses that have moved out of California in the past 30 years have relocated to lower cost states of Nevada, Arizona, Texas, and Oregon. Um, and uh, they found that Las Vegas was the top destination. Um, but you know, Oregon was mentioned there and, uh, essentially like there's a lot of different reasons. Taxes are definitely one of them. Um, there is a, a recent paper by the economist Josh Rao and Ryan Shayu that found that out migration of top bracket taxpayers accelerated after an income tax hike in 2012, uh, so that that paper, which came after that 2012 tax hike, showed that people did leave. You know, I look at this in New York, for example, and I think it's real. And I think often people are like, "Oh, like let the billionaires move down to Florida, or whatever." And I, and I have a couple thoughts. One is, sure, like nobody's going to shed a tear over the billionaires, I guess. But the very same people who are saying, "Oh, like let them move," are also the same people who keep making promises of the revenue that they're going to capture from those billionaires and how they're going to use that revenue to expand services. So I do think the very people who say, hey, we don't need these billionaires are addicted to the very money that they're pulling from those billionaires and hundred millionaires, right? So I think that's one. I think two is that this is not just about billionaires. As our, our listener uh, indicates, this is about everyday people. And, and there's one example in New York that has always made me mad. And there are a gazillion examples. This is just one industry, which is in the fitness industry. I have a lot of friends in the fitness industry, and these are middle-class people by and large in New York trying to make a living. And in New York, there's this weird law that's been on the books for decades. I think it started in the 70s um, that was meant to address the rise of brothels in New York City and had all these weird rules about you have to have showers here and you have to have all this expensive permitting and yada, yada, yada. And it applies to gyms for some really weird reason and means that you have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on unnecessary permitting and land use, yada, 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 going through the right committee. And there's like this whole class of consulting consultants and firms who help you get your permits, et cetera, who essentially have kept this, this law on the books. And this is just like regulation without any purpose other than to uh, allow rent-seeking, you know, very small amount of people to make a lot of money who've captured politicians in the city. And I think this is something that you see across a lot of places. And I think in blue states, we have a particular issue with this kind of stuff because I think deregulation is such a nasty word in blue circles, but we don't think about the fact that they're, you know, these sort of just the detritus of year over year over year, in many cases, well-intentioned regulation that doesn't get pulled down is just crippling small business owners. 
And yes, and medium and large size businesses too, which we need, by the way, people need jobs. And so I, I think this is real. And I, and I want to see more people like Jared Polis. I want to see more people in the Democratic Party running as Democrats for deregulation. So I'll get off my soapbox. It's like you said, Ravi, anything, too much of anything ends up being bad. Yeah. In this case, maybe we need more freedom. <laughs> exactly. So, okay. Thank you, listener. Uh, we also got a, an, a message, and I'll keep this one anonymous because sent to me about RFK. We had a segment on RFK when we had uh, Isaac on, and this is what the message says. It says, quote, the lack of intellectual curiosity on the left about RFK's claims is surprising to me. In another generation, he's basically Ralph Nader preaching caution about the incentives of big business to hide safety issues from the public. I tend to think RFK is wrong on most of these things, but I feel like I was raised to be distrustful of the environment, environmental and health impacts of big business, and at least think entertaining the ideas has merit. Uh, and then went on to talk about how like the experts haven't necessarily availed themselves well. Now, you know, Isaac said something essentially about like a s similar-ish to this in the sense that, well, he's you know RFK is wrong about a lot, but he's he's also right about certain things. Which, sure, but like I think this is true of anybody who's wrong about a lot. <laughs> it's like nobody's wrong about everything. So the question is, what's the general thrust of your worldview? And are you intellectually honest in a way that we can trust anything that you say? Because we have a limited amount of time. Like, right, like I hear often from people that, oh, Andrew Tate makes some sense. And I'm like, well, I, I haven't heard a lot from him that makes a lot of sense. But also there are other things that Andrew Tate has said that tell me that this is a guy who comes from a particular worldview to me that I don't find valid. And actually I, I find it, I find it so evil that anything that emanates from him, including like whether he says the sky blue or is blue or not, like there are other people who could tell me the sky is blue. I don't need Andrew Tate to tell me the sky is blue. Right. So in this case with RFK, there are plenty of people out there in my opinion who have a lot of interesting things to say about uh, the pharmaceutical industry, about expert consensus and the mistakes that they've made, et cetera. And I don't think RFK has availed himself way. And I'm not, I'm not commenting on him right now as the political candidate. I'm talking about him as the vaccine expert, which I don't think he is. He has not shown himself to be a credible person on these issues. Therefore, I think we should probably, if we, if we have a limited amount of time to have experts on, I'd rather hear from experts who don't have the same baggage that he has. And as evidence of this, this week, a clip came out of RFK Jr. at some kind of event. It might have been a political fundraiser basically saying that, well, I'll let you listen to this. Let's go to the clip. We need to talk about bioweapons. The level I know a lot now about bioweapons because I've been doing a book on it for the past two and a half years. And, uh, and you know, the, the, what we, the technology that we now have to develop these micro, we have we've put hundreds of millions of dollars into uh, ethnically targeted microbes. The Chinese have done the same thing. In fact, COVID-19, there's an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 attacks certain races um, disproportionately. The, uh, the, 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 the races that are most immune to COVID-19 are because of the, of the structure of the, of, um, the genetic structure among uh, genetic differentials among different races. Of the um, of the receptors of the ACE2 receptor, um, COVID nineteen is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and uh, and uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and uh, and Chinese. And but we don't know whether it was deliberately targeted that or not. But there are papers out there that show the you know the. Um, the racial and ethnic differential and of impact to that. We do know that the Chinese are spending hundreds of millions of dollars developing ethnic bioweapons, and we are developing ethnic bioweapons. That's what all those labs in the Ukraine are about. They're collecting Russian DNA, they're collecting Chinese DNA, though we can target people by race. This is utter, utter nonsense. And look, like, 
you know, Arv could say is like, he was just saying that there's an argument that yada, 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 you know, this is a common thing I see out there, people uh, in the sort of conspiracy world where they're just raising questions. And I'm like, well, you only have so many questions to raise, right? So like what questions you decide to raise and the, the intellectual rigor you bring to answer those questions uh, is really important to me. And what he is saying is just utter nonsense. Like, and he could say, like, I'm not anti-Semitic or whatever. I actually think whether he's anti-Semitic or not is is a different question than whether he's just not scientifically rigorous. And what I hear is a person who's just like, oh, yeah, the papers say this. Paper, you can find a paper that says anything. But what is, what the bottom line is, COVID-19 was not a genetically engineered virus uh, to spare Ashkenazi Jews and, and Chinese people. There certainly isn't evi any evidence of that. And so uh, this is a guy who just seems, as I said before with Isaac, is a pattern recognizing machine for reasons that are obvious based on his background and I feel for him. But I, you know, my, my empathy for him extends only so far. And once he starts spreading dangerous and stupid ideas, uh, to the public, I don't find him a credible person as a vaccine expert anymore. I, I'm not talking about his candidacy because that's not our place here. But as a vaccine expert, I find him to be totally unserious. The study he mentioned was published in July of 2020, and this is from the New York Times. Early in the pandemic, before effective treatments had emerged, the study made no reference to Chinese people as less receptive to the virus, nor did it speak of targeting the virus itself. It said one particular receptor for the virus appeared not to be present in Amish and Ashkenazi Jews. The implication here is so funny to me, which is like, let's let's take for a given that the virus affects different races differently. Now we go from that to saying that this is a bioweapon, which is how we started this conversation. <laughs> it's like, and it's always, there's always some big bad. There's always some conspiracy. So uh, yes, like to our listener, I want a modern day Ralph Nader. I, I, I loved Ralph Nader and, and, and what he stood for in many ways. I, I don't, I haven't revisited him in a long time. So I'm sure there's some things out there that I'm not aware of, but, uh, but I, I just can't, I can't equate the two right now in my head. I really can't. Uh, all right. I got another message about, um, books. People are saying, Hey, I'm heading to the, the beach and what kind of books do you recommend? Um, I'll just recommend a few things that have caught my eye recently. Uh, there's this book called Dispatches from Pluto by Richard Grant, which is about the Mississippi Delta. It's a British guy who moved to the Mississippi Delta, and he writes about this just beautiful, wonderful, crazy place that I've spent a lot of time, and it is beautiful. And even if you're not that interested in the Mississippi Delta, which I honestly can't recommend enough learning about the place, he has more interesting things to say about race in America than almost anybody I've ever read, in part because he's an outsider um, coming from England, and it's a beautiful read. Uh, so that book is great. Die with Zero by Bill Perkins is great. Uh, it's all a book about like how do you think about your spending and risk taking as your life goes on. And he has some great data and and ways of thinking about life in this book. Essentially, like talks about how people hoard their resources for when they are least likely to take advantage of them, and they also hoard their dreams to the point where all right, all right, I'm gonna like I'm gonna try surfing when I'm 65 and retired or whatever. But then you're 65 and you really it's harder to surf. Uh, and also you can never you can't predict what you're gonna be like at 65. And so he has a whole way of thinking about this uh, that's really fascinating. Um, on the fiction side of things, I would recommend anything by Tana French. Uh, she's an Irish writer who has um, a whole crime series and is a beautiful writer with just like a crazy, awesome world. Uh, there's a book called The Likeness, which is my favorite. And actually was the first one I read, even though it's like a couple books into her series. And that's the one that when I've recommended most people like the most, but Into the Woods is the first one in, in that collection. Uh, and then on the non-book side of things, two uplifting things that I've, one I've revisited recently and one that I saw for the first time recently. So the thing I saw for the first time recently is the Michael J. Fox documentary on Apple called Still which is truly incredible. Uh, and it basically, I think a lot of people um, I talk to about this, like, ah, you know, I just can't watch Michael J. Fox right now because it's so sad. I promise you, you won't think that watching this because his optimism, he's so optimistic and so, has such an amazing attitude about his, his condition, his Parkinson's disease. That it makes it wakes you up to whatever you in, is going on in your head about what you think like 
whatever wrong you're dealing with, right? And I and I honestly, I obviously don't know what all of you are going through, and some of you could be going through something more serious than Parkinson's. But by and large, most of you listening probably aren't. And I think it'll remind you that hey, like we've all got privileges, and you know, hopefully, you have the privilege of your health. And he doesn't have the privilege of his health, but still considers himself a lucky person and has shows such an optimism and vibrancy for life. Um, there's another documentary called Oliver Sacks, His Own Life. This is about Oliver Sacks, the uh, the doctor, psycho, you know, I think he's a neuroscientist. Um, and he is a beautiful guy who passed away recently and just lived an incredible life. And it's all about the generosity of spirit he showed towards his patients but also just the spirit for adventure he had in life. And I can't recommend it enough. And you could get that one on uh, Amazon, but also you can, uh, he, you could read any of his books. He has a book called On the Move, which is really, really, really awesome. Uh, he's an awesome writer. He wound up becoming a New York writer in addition to being a path-breaking physician. It's a guy who likes his mushrooms too. So I can't, I, I, gotta, <laughs> I gotta mention that. Okay, well, you guys got any good reads? Well, since we're heavy on the Latin American content this uh, this week, I want to recommend the new book by Isabel Allende. She's my favorite author of all time. The new book is called The Wind Knows My Name, and she intertwines the story of a Jewish boy in Vienna in 1938 with the story of a Salvadorian girl in 2010 who has to escape El Salvador after a massacre. And he talks about her trip with her dad, to the U.S. and she crosses the border. So it's a beautiful story. Her books, I've read all of them. Um, they are heavy, they are sad, but they are also beautiful and they are so universal. So I highly recommend it. And Monica, do you, when you, when there's an author who's a noted Latin American author who's written in Spanish and either also English or translated to English, do you tend to read the book in Spanish or English? I prefer to read it in Spanish, but sometimes I cannot find it here in New York. So I've read some of her books in English as well. What about you, Miki? What are you reading lately? Well, I just started Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. You'd be proud, Ralph. Oh, yeah. It was a, this book. was a Ravi Good recommendation. Book. I'm actually really excited. I really, really like him a lot. I thought Chasing the Scream, his earlier book was really, really awesome. Great recommendations. Everybody send in your, your own recommendations. We can play them at the end of episodes. Great. All right. New voicemail. Hi, Ricky and Robbie. Really interesting show today. A couple quick comments. Uh, Robbie made a comment under the immigration and um, verification that I think he said Ron DeSantis requires he verify. I assume he meant Florida. But under federal law since 1986, you're required to have an I-9 filled out on all employers verifying employment. And E-Verify is part of the federal system. So um, just a little check on... You know, Florida is not really an outlier here. Uh, it's really a federal issue that um, maybe he was taking issue with. The more important point was um, very interesting on the cell phones. I was really curious to get both of your reactions at some point on the number of schools that are um, issuing laptops. So there might be a way to restrict certain apps on laptops and so forth. But do you guys think this will – it certainly is the future – but does it exacerbate uh, the problem? And a final comment would be, uh, not to pick on a caller, but the second caller who said, well, you know, it's not fair to the kids, et cetera, et cetera. And at home, we try to practice what we preach. But I think um, some of those types of parents have to remember that they're adults and the kids are kids. So if a kid were to, for example, say, hey, you guys drink wine at dinner, why can't I drink? you clearly would say, well, because we're adults and you're a kid. And, you know, there are plenty of other examples. So I think the parenting that treats children like they're a part of the adult, part of the family might be part of the problem. Let me let me do it from in reverse here. So on the last point, I hear him on the, like, kids are different than adults. But I do think the adult, like, how far the adult takes it is really important to use this analogy about wine. If your parents are getting hammered all the time, then the kid, I think, does have a right to be like, hey, parents, don't be drunk all the time, right? Uh, and I think this gets this goes for cell phones, right? Like if the parents, and, and I think some of us have people in our lives like this, our relatives are on their phones all the time, addicted to their screens and all that, and then telling the kids not to, like the, the sort of logician in me is like, well, the 
the double standard is less important than the standard, right? So like, yes, you could be like, well, you're asking me to do X, but you're doing X, uh, you're doing Y. Well, that's, that's, that's a form of an ad hominem argument, but it's also true. <laughs> so as a parent, you lose your authority if you're asking your kids to exercise discretion and discipline with their cell phones, but you're addicted to it. But I also think the the fundamental principle is important, which is it's important to just be present for your children, right? So don't be the drunk, right? If you, you know, be the person who has a glass of wine at dinner, sure. But don't be the person who's, um, you know, like l- lacking in discipline and serving as a poor role model and not present for your children. I think on the second part, um, on the laptops and schools, I think I have to think about this more. I tend to think that that we should be offering laptops to kids, but we should also have laptop-free zones and periods of the day. Uh, and I've talked about that a lot. On E-Verify, very interesting. I went down this rabbit hole this morning, and it's very hard to figure out what's going on here. And so there's this law firm called the Dwayne Morris Law Firm that did a write-up. And I think this tends to happen whenever a new area of state law happens, like you know, law firms will issue like briefs saying, here's how to think about this. And it's a way to generate business in many ways. And this is what they had to say, quote, this is a significant new law that imposes duties and responsibilities on numerous companies doing business in Florida. In particular, the law is likely to have substantial effect on uh, some of Florida's most prominent industries, construction, hospitality, and agriculture, for example. And then it has this extensive write-up about what this means. And it says that the state department of economic opportunity may impose penalties on a person if they knowingly employ, hire, recruit, or refer for uh, private or public employment, an individual and honor authorized work. And this includes, um, uh, repayment of any economic development incentives, placing an employer on one year probation, re- requiring that the employer report quarterly to the department. Uh, and it could suspend your licenses. If you have one to 10 authorized workers, you could su- suspend even more licenses if it gets to 50. And then they could revoke the licenses if you have more than 50 workers. So my sense here is that, yes, uh, you technically are supposed to have I-9s, and the e-verify part of this might not be the most interesting piece. It may be the consequences they attach to e-verify. Now, the question is, so translation here, being either way, you are technically supposed to be keeping tabs on these people, but the federal government is clearly not enforcing that. The question becomes, is Florida going to enforce this law vigorously or not, which is an answer nobody has. It's the Dwayne Morris law firm seems to think they are. NPR, who wrote about this, said something different. They said, um, the agency and responsible for this quote does not have a robust enforcement section. And then they went through, um, Cato, they quote the Cato Institute, which basically said that similar states that did similar things were very weak on enforcement. So I think the question is how much heart does Ron DeSantis have for this in a state that's like two point something percent unemployment right now, which has a lot of new construction, a lot of businesses that depend on undocumented immigrants. I don't know the <clears throat> I don't know the answer to that question. And normally the politics would dictate that the business community would win out and that the people ignore this law like they ignore the I-9 portion of this. But when somebody's running for president and they want to gain attention, I think all bets are off. My dad runs a small contracting company in the Tampa Bay, and he said he already has a lot of issue finding new good people to work and especially now after the law there has been a a lot of concern among like immigrant workers there and friends of like how much this law is going to be enforced even people who are documented people who are who are undocumented the question and the fear is in all of the immigrant community especially in florida right now I think the end result is going to be that employers are not going to want to hire immigrants documented or not because they don't want to get in trouble. And I was just checking right now, immigrants make up almost 30% of the labor force in in Florida. Yeah. And the question is how many are undocumented, right? It's amazing. All right. Let's go to the next voicemail. Hi, Ricky and Robbie. This is Ian from North Carolina. I'm not an expert at the topic of AI, but I am an educated fan. People don't realize that what they are actually often afraid of is not AI itself, but rather sentient or self-aware AI. Until AI has its own intentions and self-motivated directives, it is functionally just a tool, which means without human input, AI is functionally inert. The most basic combinations of AI are already in our today's society in three basic forms. 
for example, one, human-assisted by AI, like Ricky mentioned in the way she uses AI to assist her in writing. Two, an assisted uh, AI-assisted by humans. Autonomous cars can te uh, technically don't require our input, but can potentially benefit from it. And three, AI by itself, which comes to us in two very common ways, the first being deep and narrow contexts, such as AI phone services, as in press one for Linda, press two for George. And the second being shallow or wide contexts, such as Alexa, Siri, Google, and ChatGPT, which are still very new and often bad at their jobs. Essentially, AI has already existed for a long time already, and the likelihood of it taking our place or jobs before they achieve sentience is very, very low. So I think on this question of sentience, right, there's the question of taking jobs, and then there's the question of the threat they pose to us. On, on the latter, that interview with Mark Andreessen and Sam Harris on the Waking Up podcast uh, had a, a an extensive back and forth about this question of like how much does sentience matter? Uh, and here's Sam Harris in that discussion, I think gets a, a little bit at what the this listener has to say. The side of the argument in which the machine is in some way self-interested, self-aware, self-motivated, trying to preserve itself, some level of sentience, consciousness, setting its own goals. Well, just to be clear, there's no consciousness implied here. I mean, the, the lights don't have to be on. It just, I, I think that, I mean, this remains to be seen, whether consciousness comes along for the ride at a certain level of intelligence, but I think they probably are, are orthogonal to one another. So intelligence can scale without the lights coming on, in, in my view. So let's leave sentience and consciousness aside. Well, I, but I guess there is a fork in the road, which is like, is it declaring its own intentions? Like, is it developing its own, you know, when, when I, conscious or not? Is it does, it, does it have a sense of any form or a vision of any kind of its own future? Yeah. So this is why, this is where I think we're there's some daylight growing between us because to be dangerous, I don't think you need necessarily to be running a, a self-preservation program. Okay. I mean, the, the, there's some version of unaligned competence that may, may not formally model the machine's place in the world, uh, much less defend that place, which could still be, if uncontrollable by us, could still be dangerous, right? It's like it doesn't have to be self-referential in a way that a, an animal the truth is, they're, they're dangerous animals that might not even be self-referential. And certainly, right. something like a virus, virus. Uh, yep. or a bacterium you know, is, is not self-referential in, in a way that we would understand, and it's, it can be lethal to our interests. I cannot recommend enough. I know a lot of podcasters don't like to recommend other podcasts because it's like you know driving people to other places, but there's, there's no better discussion I've heard out there than the discussion between these two. It's worth listening to. You get at least an hour of the conversation and then the rest is gated and you could decide whether you want to you know, take, take Harris up on his offer to, to listen um, under his paid model or not. But they get really deep into this and it's just way beyond my pay grade to understand what it means to be sentient, what it means to be conscious. Harris has done a lot of work on this and I think it's, it's fascinating just listening to two of these because you have somebody who's super bullish and somebody who's super bearish who are both really, really smart and showing that each other a lot of respect. And I haven't seen anything better out there. So I, I would take a listen to that full interview. Well, let's go to Luke about school phone policy. I just wanted to say that the fact that there's a debate over school phone policies is itself a point for school choice because school choice empowers families to choose a school that has the phone-related policies they prefer or at least balance that against other considerations. Also, school choice empowers schools to set their phone-related policies and enforce them. It's much easier to maintain the moral high ground when you're enforcing a policy someone agreed to of their own volition. Schools that are chosen can say, you chose this school, and by doing so, chose these policies. We will enforce them according to the agreement. If you've changed your mind, then you can choose another school. And lastly, school choice empowers everyone to discover good phone-related policies in an organic way. Yeah, I mean, as predicted, uh, he is preaching to the choir on this. I 100% agree. I have a lot of experience with this because I had policies that I think some people would view as uncompromising, including back then around phones, which I've talked about in our interview with Doug Lamov, which I was very strict about this. First time, we keep it for a day. The parents got to come and get it. Second time, we keep it for a week. The parents got to come and get it. Third time, we keep it to the end of school year. Parents got to come and get it. And I would have orientations that the parents would come to. 
uh, at the beginning of the year and I would outline this policy for them and I'd be like, look, this is what you're signing up for. And that's powerful, right? And maybe there's another school down the street that's way more permissive. Not even maybe. Absolutely. There was a school down the street that was way more permissive. If the parent wants that, they can go to that school. And I think uh, this goes well beyond cell phone policy. It has to do with whether you're strict or loose, whether you're Montessori or more Catholic school oriented, whether you do data science for math or algebra, whether you have two hours of science or 30 minutes of science. Like I, I think like whenever you're in a place that allows for a certain economy of scale, uh, school choice is the best mechanism I've found to offer diversity of school models for parents to choose from. And because no, no, no parent is the same, no kid is the same. And often, and also people often don't know exactly what they want and they want to try a few things. And so I'm obviously supportive of school choice um, with certain limitations that we've talked about, but I, I think that the cell phone piece here is important. All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Send in voicemails, 321-200-0570. If you like this format, please let us know. Um, consider doing it again. We can often you know, bring back on our Latin American contingent anytime. Uh, we have new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. On Thursday, we will have Isaac back on. And uh, we'll be tackling some of the Tangle episodes. So, uh, Ricky, uh, assuming she recovers fully, which we, you know, God willing, she will. She'll be back on Tuesday. Uh, and thank you, everybody. And thank you again for sending in voicemails. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'll talk Thursday. <laughs>